And there is no hope for the Holy Land apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and, and what he has done to redeem lost souls. Which begs the question, if the people there in the land are so acquainted, and they are, with this wonderful person whose name we earlier praised, this Jesus. If they're so familiar with him, they are. They know of the Mount of Olives, and they, and, and they know of the empty tomb, and they, and they know of Golgotha. They know of all these things that we travel thousands of miles to visit. If they're so familiar, if the Jewish people there are so familiar with events in the life of the Lord Jesus, if they know of his life and that he was in Nazareth and Bethlehem and all these places, if they've heard of his miracles, working power, and are uh, familiar even with his magnificent teaching, if they could visit the very synagogues there, the ruins of which he once stood in, if they know about his return, and they do, they know about all these things, if they know some people claim that he's the Jewish Messiah and he's the sin bearer for the world, if they know all that, here's the question, why are so relatively few Jewish people in love with Jesus? Why do most turn their backs on him, harden their hearts, and turn away from him? This is a question that has been asked throughout the centuries. It's a very valid question, and there are answers. It's a sort of a complicated issue. Why don't Jewish people, so blessed with spiritual privilege, why don't they recognize their own Messiah? Well, the text before us tonight provides an answer. It's not a complete answer. To get a complete answer, you need the totality of Scripture, right? So we're only going to look at four verses tonight, and we'll only look to the answer to that question provided by Paul. It's in Romans chapter 9. We left off last time at verse 29. We'll begin in verse 30 tonight and finish the chapter. It's four striking verses. So we're in Romans chapter 9, verse 30, and you'll see the answer to this haunting question. Why is it that Jewish people entrusted with such privilege, the likes of which Paul identified, didn't he, at the beginning of Romans chapter 9, in the first five verses, you can count it, he listed the privileges bestowed upon Jewish people uniquely. And how could it be if they've received such privilege, so few, statistically few, uh, believe on him as their own Messiah? Well, here's an answer. Verse 30, Romans chapter 9. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. What in the world does that mean? Is this saying that Jews have uh, more of an interest in being righteous than Gentiles? No, it's not saying that at all. It's saying that Jews were entrusted with the law of Moses, the commandments through which they tried to establish right standing with God. And since the commandments given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai was not given to Gentiles, they did not try to pursue right standing with God through the doing of the law. The Jews did. And and so this text is saying something sort of like this. Imagine the metaphor of a race. You have two runners. One of them disciplined himself, trained and really, really worked 
at winning the race. And when the race begins, he really exerts himself to cross the finish line before his opponent. Now the other competitor did not work out, did not train, did not diet and discipline himself, and in the midst of the race, appeared not to exert himself at all. It's just very casual about the whole thing. And then lo and behold, here's the mystery. The guy who didn't work out, who didn't train, didn't even exert himself, crosses the finish line, and the other doesn't even make it. That's essentially what Paul is saying. The Jews are running a race through their own observance of the law. Good things, the commandments of God, through their own effort at living by the law so as to please God. The Jews are running that race to win the prize of acceptance in God's eyes. But not only did they not win the prize, Gentiles who aren't even running the race the way the Jews are, they won the prize. How could it be? Well, because the Jews tried to establish righteousness through law, but the Gentiles did it by faith. That's the reason why most of my people do not believe and are apart from God today. Now, look, before we develop this a little further... um, Let's define righteousness, because when we mention righteousness, most of us think of right living. A righteous person is someone who lives rightly, and you're right, but that's not the sense in which Paul is using the word in this context. In fact, he's using the word righteousness in an Old Testament uh, context, which doesn't have to do with right living. It has to do with right standing. So in the Old Testament, if someone was considered righteous, it doesn't mean that they had inherent morality or virtue. It doesn't mean that they conform to a list of do's and don'ts better than anyone else. It means that they were rightly related to God. A righteous person from the Jewish mindset is someone who is positioned rightly with God. A righteous person is not on odds with God. A righteous person has a relationship with God. Nothing separates the righteous person from God. Paul is saying Jewish people pursued that. They wanted to be right with God. They wanted him to say, draw nearer. You are my children. They wanted his approval, pat on the back. But they sought it in their own efforts. Gentiles, on the other hand, who weren't even that zealous for right standing with God. Gentiles in this day worshipped a multiplicity of gods. This God, that God. But the true God was not being pursued by them with as much tenacity as he was by the Jews. And yet they attained right standing with God. Why? Because they pursued it by faith by confidence in his provision for our right standing. And they didn't rest on their own semblance of virtue and, and right living. So this is, this is kind of why most of my people uh, are not uh, following the Lord today. And you wonder, how could it be that Jews seeking after God with such zealousness, even today, doing the works of the law of Moses, How could they have failed to arrive at right standing with God? We were in Israel. We visited a place called Independence Hall. It's the place where Israel's uh, statehood was declared in May of 1948. Our group uh, was brought into a room to watch a video. I had seen it many times, and I wanted a break from our group. (laughs) So I stayed out in the lobby. 
And uh, I sat down, the guy sat down next to me, young guy, Jewish guy. Conversation began. This is what we had prayed about. Oh, God, give us conversations uh, where we could share. And so uh, we're just sitting and talking. One thing leads to another. I'm making small talk. How long you been here? What's going on? And all the rest. He's an Orthodox guy. Wore, you've seen those beanies? A skull, a yarmulke, we call them. Very Orthodox guy. A nice guy, a good guy. He was another Israeli tour guide, but an American. He went from here to there. He made what we call Aliyah. He went up to the land. He's an Israeli citizen now. He's living by the law, the dietary laws, the ceremonial laws, all this kind of stuff. See, he's pursuing righteousness. He was zealous, my heavens. We could not question his sincerity and wholeheartedness. And and we talked, and then I got to share with him. Uh, my testimony, and how, how I had come to be, we have a term, bar mitzvah. When a kid is 13, he has a bar mitzvah, means son of the law. I said, you know, but my boys had their bar mitzvah at our, I said, congregation. I didn't say church, because I wanted to ease into it. And so I said, but, but, but we didn't call it bar mitzvah. We called it bar emunah. He knew what that meant. It meant not son of the law. It meant son of mercy. And I told him, don't you see, the law is good, but it defines the fact that we are not. And through the law, God never intended for us to be saved. We couldn't. The law is a perfect reflection of his moral character. And as we stand next to it, it shows us how sinful we are. So what we need is not the law by which we are saved. We need to be a bar or bat, a son or daughter of emunah, of mercy. And so I shared with him how I found that mercy. And this is a very Jewish thing. And I shared with him Isaiah 53. Go home tonight when you get a chance. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I said to this friend whose name I won't mention... I said to him, this is not in the Gentile part of the Bible. He thinks the New Testament's the Gentile part of the Bible. I went with that. I said, fine, we'll look at the Hebrew Scriptures. I said, this is by Isaiah, bud. This is, this is one of our homies. This is, you know what I'm talking about? Isaiah 50. But anyway, we had a great conversation, and, and we exchanged contact information. I have his email address and all the rest, and... But I ate even after it, and I thought, how could it be, oh God, that he has such an interest in being right with you, but is not right with you? Because he's pursuing righteousness by a law of good works. They are good works. Not criticizing what he was doing, but they fall short. Do you know that passage? All have, how does it go? All have sinned and fallen short. Of the glory of God. That's in Romans 3. We went through that, didn't we, a million years ago. So even this guy had fallen short of the glory of of God. So your heart aches. But this text explains to me why this guy does not have right standing with God, but I do. He's actually exerting himself more than I am. But I've come by faith through the grace of God with reference to the shed blood of the Lord. And he, he refuses Well, then we were leaving Israel, ready to come home, because people were dying from Mexican food. (laughs) And uh, we were in the airport in Tel Aviv, and everything in our trip had gone gone so marvelously well. A few cuts and scrapes. I got some crazy rash on my leg there, and it was great. I got so much sympathy from our group. 
I really love that. And uh, so then we're in the airport. Everything's fine. You know, we're all healthy and well, anxious to get home. And our flight was scheduled for noontime on Israel time. And all of a sudden, over the PA system, we get this deal. There's a baggage handler strike from 11 to 2. They're making a point for three hours. The baggage handlers. Well, 11 to 2 takes care of our noon departure. You know what I mean? So we were stuck there in the airport for over two hours. And I'm thinking I was faking it for the group. Because when you're the group leader, you have to fake it. And you have to act like everything's okay, even when it's not. But now that we're back, I can tell you the truth. I was thinking, we are not going to make our connecting flight. We had a connecting flight in Newark. You missed that one. What do we do? We'll never get back to Houston. We're lost. (laughs) And so I made a call, not to the airlines, because I don't know how to work them. I contacted BJ Massa. She's better than the airlines, let me tell you. And so BJ called the airlines to see what our options are, and it was this. If we miss that connecting flight in Newark, the next flight is the next morning, 5.30 in the morning. Got to find our way to a hotel, and we won't get out till 5.30 the next morning in Newark, New Jersey. You don't want to be staying overnight in Newark, New Jersey. Excuse me if you're from, if you're from New Jersey. We just, we just lost you. Um, Well, anyway, I didn't think we were going to make it at all. But anyway, we get to the Newark airport. It is complicated. You got to go through customs. There's nine bazillion people in line. And then when you go through customs, you have to get your luggage and carry it with you to another station and recheck it. I don't know why they do that. They just make you pay to be an American, something like that. Anyway, when you do that, to get to the gate, your departure gate is like 14 miles away. I'm, you, we had to, you have to take a train to get there. And I thought, well, I'll do my best to lead the group. But at that point, the group wised up and realized, don't follow Stuart. <laughs> this was a good decision. So the group just went without me. So there was nobody to lead. It was kind of like, I am your leader. Where are my followers? I had none. So anyway, I thought, well, you know, here's the deal. Maybe some of us are going to make it on that plane. But I know some are not going to do it. Gene and Pat Sims are not going to do it. They're just walking real slow. You you know how old they are. They're not going (laughs) to. There's no way they're going to make it. They're spending the night in Newark, New Jersey. But I was thinking at that time, it's kind of every man for himself. We'll pray for you. Well, look, we get to the gate. Everyone's on board. Everyone is there. And our, we had about 25 people. We made it. Every one of us sat on that plane and got back here to. Bush Intercontinental Airport on Texas real estate and just just absolutely rejoicing. But then I figured out why God allowed that baggage handler strike. Because while we were stuck in the Tel Aviv airport, I was sitting down there just minding my own business. And a lady was sitting next to me. And she just starts making conversation about stuff. And so I got to return the favor. So I'm making conversation. Can I be honest with you? I was in no mood to talk to her about anything of redeeming value. I was just kind of tired of people. Have you gotten that way? You just get tired of people. You say, give me a computer. The computer is easy to work with. People are high maintenance. That's what I was thinking. So um, I don't want to talk to this lady about stuff. You know, let somebody else lead her to the Lord. You know, I, anyway, 
But it didn't work that way. She was just making conversation. And where are you coming from? And oh, we've been here in Israel. How about you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I live in, she mentioned the place here in the States. She's an American. What are you doing in Israel? Well, I was on a lecture tour, says she. Really? Well, what were you lecturing about? Well, she said, I just got my PhD in early childhood education. I don't know why you need a PhD in figuring out how to diaper kids. But anyway... <laughs> Uh, I did not say that to her. So she got this, oh, congratulations, said I. Well, I said, mazel tov, you know, kind of a little connection. I know a couple Jewish words. I'll throw that in. And we're just talking and all this kind of stuff. And she mentioned to me, she said, yes, my husband is a rabbi. Ooh, baby. Her husband is a rabbi. Look at that. I'm talking to this Ph.D. lady who's married to a rabbi. I'm an ordained Southern Baptist minister. Oh, this is, I'm thinking this is not going to go very well at all. But anyway, there it is. And I just went for it. Uh, and, uh, and again, I, uh, we spoke for one hour. And I got to share my testimony again. You know, sharing your story is a wonderful thing to do because nobody knows better than you what Jesus has done for you. You see, nobody, nobody, nobody can criticize you. Call, call into question your story. They can turn away from it if they like, but they can't question your story. You're the expert on what the Lord has done for you. So I always start that way. And then once again, we went through Scripture. In this case, Leviticus 17.11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. I told her, do you know that's not a Gentile New Testament concept? Do you know that's the Torah written by Rabbi Moses? I said, with all due respect, my friend, he has higher rank than your rabbi husband. And that's written. So without the blood, there is no atonement. So I said, where is the blood sacrifice today? She said, it can't be offered. We have no temple. I said, you are right. And our people have substituted things God has never authorized. Our people have substituted what we call mitzvot, good deeds. Be a good person. And I said, I'm all in favor of people being good people. But that won't cut it with a perfectly holy God. We're just not good enough. And then I got a chance to share with her what another Jewish person said one day. I said, his name is Yochanan. That's John. Yochanan. I said, Yochanan one time saw someone and he pointed his followers to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I said, look at that. What this Lamb of God did, he did for Jewish sin and he did for Gentile sin. He is the ultimate lamb of God. We don't need a temple. We don't need an endless succession of sacrificial bulls and goats because what this Yeshua did, he did once and for all. And when he did it, he said, it is finished, paid in full. And I said to her, wouldn't you love to leave this place knowing you do not any longer owe God a debt you cannot pay? Well, she just wasn't ready to accept the Lord Jesus, but we had a great conversation. And once again, I was left with sadness because this is a good lady. She's taking care of kids. I introduced her to our children's minister, Rhonda Black. I figured, you know, they know about kids. I don't much like kids. They have cooties. Kids. You know this? And so I thought, well, I'll introduce these two ladies. And it was beautiful. Rhonda was just really, really wonderful with her and all her. And I felt so terrible. This lady is such a good woman, such a virtuous woman, such a religious woman. And once again, this text tells me You can't be good enough. Your religion can't save you. 
Your good deeds can't save. If they could, both of those people would be saved ahead of me. They're exerting themselves. But folks like you and I are crossing the finish line ahead of them because something in us, I think it was God's spirit, persuaded us not only of sin and not only of judgment, but of the way to be right with God. The Holy Spirit did that. And the Holy Spirit showed us there's nothing we could do to make ourselves acceptable to God and right with him. He had to resolve our sin problem. And those who think they could do it themselves are folks who underestimate How serious our sin is. Those who are seeking a kind of religious self-righteousness at the means of being right with God, they're underestimating just how serious is their sin. They think it's, I make a couple mistakes. Oh, no, we sin in thought, word, and deed. Nobody, no baby takes a class in sinning. Nobody has to take sin 101. It's part of us, for crying out loud. And it's such an integral part of us. We need help from outside of us. We need help from on high. And the Lord Jesus is that help. He is that Savior. And he's the one who could help us cross the finished line. So I asked the question, oh God, why is it that these people, very sincere, zealous, good people as we reckon it, are not right with you? Why? And here's the answer a little more amplified in verse 32, because they did not pursue it, righteousness. They didn't pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. Now let me divert just a little bit. The last time we were together, I, uh, we read through, and thank you for your patience, uh, the first 29 verses of Romans 9. And I, I, I said to you, uh, I, uh, this is a tough text. Uh, apparently, it's not for some of you because you have sought to set me right on, on that text. But, uh, and I admire you because I find it to be a little more complex than apparently some of you do. And, and so if you only look to the first 29 verses of Romans 9, you're left with this, something called divine election with reference to salvation. That rings out very clearly in the first 29 verses of Romans 9, and that is, if you're saved, it's because you've been elected to salvation. Of course, that leads to many other questions. If God elects some to salvation and not others, how could he hold those others responsible? And I made this statement, please hang in there. If all you have is the first 29 verses of Romans 9, that will make you a Calvinist. You should be an unashamed Calvinist. You know, because Calvinists, they believe in divine sovereignty. It's a good thing that sovereign God chooses who will be saved. There's no capacity in us to accept him. He has to choose us, you know, and this he did from before time. That's a Calvinistic position. I do not mean this in a critical way. I'm just telling you. And if all you have is the first part of Romans 9, we must all be Calvinist. But I remember telling you, but we don't have just the first part of Romans 9. We have much other scripture, including what we're reading right here. And other scripture speaks not just of divine election, for sure, but also of something called human responsibility. And here it is, verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. Folks, I cannot blame this on God. This is a choice made by prideful people who would rather establish as a means of righteousness with God, self-righteousness. It's a choice. This text now at the end of Romans 9 is all about free will. So you take the two together, divine sovereignty in the first part, Human responsibility in the second, and you get what I come up with. 
I have no idea how to harmonize those two apparently inconsistent competing thoughts. But then I say, and this is why I worship Almighty God. How unfathomable are his ways. He could take these two competing explanations for salvation, divine election, human free will, and somehow build them both into the system. And if you say how, I do not know. And I don't worry about it. My little limited finite mind cannot comprehend the infinite wisdom of Almighty God. Now, when I did this and kind of shucked and jive a little bit, I got a couple emails. By the way, they're all wonderful emails. But mainly they were, Stuart, you dropped the ball. It's divine sovereignty. No good thing dwells in us. Nobody has the capacity to choose. It's God who, for his own reasons, has chosen those from before time who will be saved and those who will not. Once again, if all you have is part of Scripture, I'm with you. But if you get the totality of Scripture. Now look, if all you had were these final verses, then that would make you an Arminian. You see what I'm saying? Well, I hate it when people say, Stuart, are you a Calvinist? You are an Arminian. I'm a person saved by grace. And uh, I usually say, I don't really know how I got saved. But don't misunderstand. I understood the gospel. But I don't understand how one day in a military barracks, something in me moved me to repent of my sins, to confess sin, to repent of it. And to ask, no, I didn't ask, I begged. You don't have to beg, but I thought you did. I begged the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive my sin. I do not know how on September 5th, 1973, the penny dropped. And this news, good news about Jesus, which I had heard. I do not know how on that day, It made sense to me on a deep level, a faith level, and I was radically saved and ushered into the kingdom. That's the work of Almighty God. I know that. That's the Calvinist part of it. But I also know on that day, I said, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Forgive me, a sinner. Change me from the inside out. Help me to live for you. That was me. (laughs) That was human responsibility. So, uh, thank you in advance for your emails. And then I made the statement. I, I said, I don't know how to harmonize it. Some of you objected. What? You went to seminary. You're a man of the cloth. You stand up there spouting off at the mouth. You're supposed to know this stuff. What? <laughs> I mean, the longer I live, the more I realize how great thou art. And I, I don't understand all this theological stuff. I just know God is the author of salvation for sure. For sure. And the finisher. Somewhere in there, he wove into that whole divine design a time when I would choose to say yes to him or no to him. How they both work together, I can't wait to ask him one day. I can't wait to be there with all of you. And he says, he'll say to you, Stuart was right. I'm looking, (laughs) see that, it's going to be heavenly. So anyway, look at here. They didn't pursue righteousness by faith. That was their choice, but as though... It were by works. And that's a very attractive thing, not only to Jewish people, but to all people, because it plays right into our human pride. Good night. We all want to establish our self-righteousness as the basis of our acceptance with Almighty God. If we do enough good, you know what we think? We will obligate God to us. 
Instead of seeing ourselves as owing God a debt, we prefer to have him owe us something. Instead of us being obligated to God, we prefer, through our measly good works, religion, all the rest, we prefer to make him obligated to us. That's called human pride. I'm telling you, pride is the downfall of the human race, for crying out loud. So we prefer personal performance that we can brag about rather than understanding. Salvation, right standing with God, is a function of God's grace and mercy. Hmm. Then it says they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Again, the race analogy. They're running. They're running. Boom. There's something in the way of the Jewish runner. Boom. Stumbles over it. Ow. But that could have been a stepping stone instead of a stumbling block. That could have vaulted that person away ahead of his opponent, crossing the finish line first. But somehow, it didn't work that way. It wasn't a a stepping stone. It was a stumbling block. Just as it is written, verse 33. Now, Paul's quoting from two verses in Isaiah, because he's talking to Jewish folks here. So he's speaking their language. Just as it, it is written, behold, I lay in Zion. Do you know what another word for Zion is? Jerusalem. Yeah. I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Do you... Let me ask you this. Do you, would you like to guess who is the stumbling stone? It's the Lord Jesus. You don't have to guess. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block. <clears throat> Jesus is the stump. Why? Because my people were, are, looking for a Messiah? Much different than Jesus. They were looking for someone who would rid them of all their enemies, beat up on all the bad guys who oppressed them. They were looking for a politician, really, political savior, military savior, not a savior from sin. And my people consulted their scripture. They don't call it Old Testament. They call it, they call it the Hebrew scriptures. And they saw a prophecy about the coming Messiah, triumphant victory, Lion of Judah. They're right. But they missed the other strain of prophecy, which speaks of him coming first as a sacrificial lamb, then as a victorious lion. And so they missed that. That's why they said to the Lord Jesus when he was impaled on a cross, Ha! You claim to be our Savior. Save yourself! You see, they dismissed him. How could he be the king of the Jews when he is subjected to Roman crucifixion? How could he save us when he can't save them? This Jesus can't be. There's no peace. When the Messiah comes, there'll be peace. There's no peace in the world. So they miss the fact. Oh, yes, there will be when he comes. The second time. The first time he came humble and mounted on a colt. The second time, read Revelation, he'll come on a white horse as befitting a victorious and triumphant leader. The first time he came to make war against sin. The second time, he'll come to make war, for sure, against sinners. The first time, he came for a while. The second time, he'll come permanently. The first time, he came as a lamb. The second time, he'll come as a lion. Someone said, while looking for a bold lion, they missed the bleeding lamb. And that's another reason why Jewish people entrusted with such privilege don't know their own Messiah. They're looking for the lion, and they missed the lamb. He was the lamb the first time. He'll be the lion the second time. If you get his first coming right, 
you have nothing to worry about his second coming. But if you're wrong about his first coming, worry. Worry. For sure. So in Zion, the text says, was placed a stone that made people stumble, a rock that would trip them up. In their own prideful self-righteousness, they tripped over the righteousness of Christ. Instead of it being a stepping stone, it's in the way, it's an obstacle to my boastfulness. I don't want to boast in what he did. I don't want to boast in the crucifixion as a substitute for my sin. I want to boast in my own virtue and morality. So they stumbled over over Christ Jesus the Savior. And by the way, let's not beat up on the Jews. They're only in here because they reflect human nature. That's everybody. What was true in Paul's day is true today. In Israel, you have Muslim people, and you have Baha'i people, and you have Mormon people, and you have Catholic people, and you have Russian Orthodox and Eastern Orthodox. You get everything over there. And what every religion has in common is a quest for right standing with God through human effort. Christ Jesus, him alone, what he did alone, is a stumbling block for all the religions of the world. Though they're different regarding the specifics, they're all the same. An attempt to climb up a ladder of goodness says, so as to make themselves worthy of God. And as high as many rungs as you put on that ladder, all have sinned and fall short. Of the glory of God. There are good aspects to religion. But there's a prideful aspect to it. Which says I can elevate myself to the level of your holiness. Requiring you to accept me. And grant me right standing. Because I have done good things. That's an underestimation of just how horribly sinful we are. But I got to tell you. Those who put their trust in Christ Jesus. Who take him Not as a stumbling block, but as a stepping stone. I'll tell you, they'll have no cause ever to be disappointed or be ashamed. And that's what it says in the final phrase. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. Maybe your Bible says will not be ashamed. Same thing. Christians around the world are going through horrific things today, are they not? God never promised that that wouldn't happen, but here's what he promises. On the day when we make it home, When we see the Lord face to face, we will have no cause for disappointment or shame. Not one of us will say, I made a mistake in accepting the Lord Jesus. I was wrong in accepting his righteousness imputed to my account. Not one of us will say that. We'll smile, we'll rejoice, we'll sing on tune, we'll worship, we'll bow at his feet. I'll tell you, he'll be ashamed. Prideful religionists who stumble over the stumbling stone. I'm going to close with this. Tonight is Rosh Hashanah. I know you know this. That's why you gathered together here. Thank you for coming. Rosh Hashanah. It's Happy New Year. Jewish New Year. Rosh means head. Hashanah. Head of the year. But Jewish New Year is different than our New Year. Our New Year, you know, we celebrate and all that kind of stuff. It's party time. That is not Rosh Hashanah. It's a time of serious reflection and introspection. Rosh Hashanah starts a 10-day period, which we call the Yamim Noraim, the 10 days of awe. During this time, it is taught, it's not biblical, but I'm telling you, this is Jewish teaching. It is taught that God opens three books. One will contain the names of good people, one will contain the names of bad people, and the other will contain the names of in-betweeners. 
good, bad, by what standard? God will evaluate the good deeds people have done the prior year. If you've done a sufficient number of good deeds, you get your name inscribed in the good book. Bad deeds, bad book. In between, you got 10 days to get it together. So during these 10 days, starting on Rosh Hashanah, ending on what we call Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, you got to clean up your act. So you fast and you make donations to the poor and you say, God, I won't do it again. You know, whatever it is. You go through all these gyrations in the hope that God, you're being judged for your life. Think about it. During these 10 days, you're being judged for your life because if your name is not inscribed in the right book for the next year and he returns, you're dead. This is serious business. And so we wish each other, we say a greeting. It's this. Lishana tova tekatevu. May your name be inscribed in the book of life. Don't know if you're going to make it, but I wish you this. I hope you make the cut. And because Jewish people know God is omniscient, he sees all things, he sees sin and transgression, they're right about that. But listen, when you know the Jewish Messiah, yeah, he sees sin and transgression, for sure, he's not fooled by all that. But he sees those sinners who've accepted Jesus as Savior, enveloped by his righteousness. He sees the scars, the abused body of his son, as atonement for our sin. He hears the petitions, the intercessory prayers of his son saying, Father, yes, that one, your son, your daughter indeed has sin in his or her life, but that's why you sent me and I died. And the father says, you're acquitted, case dismissed, enter into eternal bliss. The Christian, the follower of Jesus the Messiah, will never have a cause to be ashamed. Listen. Christ, right now, as we sit here, is either a rock of offense to you or a stepping stone by which you come to be assured of your right standing with a most holy, otherwise unapproachably God. Could I just ask you this question? Who is this Jesus for you? Are you just stumbling over him? He's in the way. Or is he the way to cross the Finish line with victory. While we were in Israel, we had occasion to sing this song. Beautiful, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, his righteousness. I dare not trust even the sweetest frame. Well, what's the option? Holy lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Why? Because all other ground is what? sinking sand. Would you please stand with me? Let's sing this, but don't go away because we're not done yet. But I think this song deserves for us to stand to sing it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy lean on Jesus' name. Here we go. On Christ the solid rock I stand All other ground is sinking sand All other ground is sinking sand Lord Jesus, would you please go through our group tonight Loved by you, some not being aware of it And would you please, in ways only you can 
Would you please impress upon that one or that two sin, their own judgment? Yes, there's accountability to you because of our sin and righteousness. The way to be right with you through you, Lord Jesus. Would you impress that upon the hearts and minds of some tonight who stand in need of salvation? Being at peace with you. Oh God, would you do the mighty work, the miraculous work of conversion, of salvation. Would you grant confession and repentance for those who have to turn from self and to you, Savior? Would you make this day, September 24th, 2014, the day of their salvation? And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 